Good morning, King's Cross. Friends and visitors, especially if it's your first time with us, we welcome you. Glad that you're here. Whether you're a Christian looking uh, for a gospel preaching church, or perhaps you're not even a Christian, you're just exploring the Christian faith in a kind of crazy and broken world and wondering if Christ has the answers, we're glad that you're here. We believe that he does, and we hope that you're even encouraged and pointed to him this morning. And we want you to know this is a good and safe place for you uh, to look into the things of Christ. The people of God ought to be characterized by holiness and justice. There are a number of things that we could say ought to characterize the people of God, but the people of God ought to be characterized by at least holiness and justice. We ought to be known as those who love God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, those who love others as ourselves. This morning we're going to cover a lot of ground. The last 10 sermons in Exodus, we went, walked one by one through the Ten Commandments and went very deep in considering just a few words for a long period of time during those sermons. But at this point, we're going to put on like four times speed and speed up through the rest of the book of Exodus. Now that's in large part because of the content in the rest of Exodus was very specific for Israel at this point in redemptive history. That does not mean it's not valuable to us for as the Apostle Paul said, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And he had in his mind the Old Testament when he said that. However, the different genres of scripture are useful to us in different ways. And we only have so many Sundays in any given year to consider as much scripture as we can in both breadth and depth. Now understanding the narrative of Exodus is, and, and the redemptive work of God in Exodus is critical for understanding the rest of the Bible. Therefore, we took our time last year when we began this study in the first 18 chapters in which I titled Rescued from Slavery. The second portion in our study, uh, I titled Rescued to New Life. We're covering Exodus chapter 19 and then uh, on through 24. In a morally and ethically confused day, we thought it wise to slow down the Ten Commandments and ground King's Cross and the biblical ethic that we, has been assumed throughout most of church history. We're going to cover the rest of Exodus 19 to 24 in today's sermon. Yes, you heard that correctly. <laughs> Exodus 20:18 through 24:18 is happening today. I hope that all of you guys took off work and uh, that we can make it be done by next Sunday, uh, Lord willing. I'm kidding, but you do need to buckle up as we're going to cover a lot of ground in a short period of time. And we're going to cover issues like slavery, restitution, Lex talionis, widows, orphans, the poor, capital punishment, involuntary manslaughter, sanctity of life, value of personal property, and social justice. You know, simple, non-controversial things like that. Not to mention laws against eating roadkill or boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, which I know you're really excited about. Now, seriously, I think it's good for us to consider much of what I will preach this morning. I will summarize for you so that we can understand what God was doing how it was good, and how we ought to live this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as new covenant Christians, considering and thinking about this scripture. So I do want to give you a main point to hang your hat on, and there's a couple key words that we'll uh, uh, kind of hang on to throughout the whole message as we cover a lot of ground. Main point, God's people, and by that I mean Israel in the old covenant, the church in the new covenant, God's people are called to be a holy and just community, depending upon God's word and faithful to his covenant. God's people are called to be a holy and just community, depending upon God's word and faithful to his covenant. 
in order to make this relevant and to land on your life here and now, and even as you think about your week ahead and your life ahead, I have four main questions I want to structure this content around. Number one, first question, how do you know you've heard from God? Second question, how do you know you're with the people of God? Third question, how do you know you're following God? And fourth question, how do you know you're part, not just with the people of God, but a part of the covenant people of God? So let's jump into those four questions after begging the Lord for help even now. So pray with me. Father, by your spirit, guide us to Jesus. For his sake we pray in our good, amen. Question number one, how do you know you've heard from God? Now it's common in our day, it's common in religious circles to hear people say they've heard from God, that God told them something or God led them or spoke to them and told them to do something. Now I do not think ordinarily this is the best language to use because our God speaks primarily by his spirit through his word, what we call the Bible. So God told me language can confuse the authority of Christian life, of uh, uh, prompting the Spirit may be leading to you, uh, you to do verse that which we know the Spirit has inspired in His Word. However, even having said that, there's no doubt God is a speaking God. He has revealed Himself by His Word and decisively by His Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now prior to the Lord Jesus and even especially in our study of Exodus, we've learned what it's like when God speaks. Israel, even in our moment, as we've studied through the Ten Commandments, is on Mount Sinai, which is enveloped in smoke and full of flashes of lightning and crashes of thunder and the blaring of trumpet sound. In many ways, we're in the middle of that which is a prophetic picture of the final judgment day when God deals with people. But what we want to notice for now is that when Yahweh speaks, He does so with terrifyingly beautiful holiness and power. We saw this in chapter 9, and we see it again as Israel responds to the 10 words. Look again at verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said, Moses, you speak to us, we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick of darkness where God was. So let me point out a few things. Again, how do you know God has spoken? Well, first, I just want you to notice that God's holy voice is not a wimpy and timid voice. The author of Hebrews actually says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what we see in our text is that hearing from God should lead not to the fear of death, verse 19, but to a right fear of God, verse 20. When God speaks, we should have a right kind of trembling, a right kind of reverence, a right kind of fear of his power and his holiness and his glory. I wonder if you approach God's word on Sundays like this. Do you come expecting to hear from this God, the real speaking God, whom you ought to tremble in his presence? When you open up the scriptures and study even your private study, I wonder if you approach understanding who and what you're dealing with, the word of God. Now, some people say they heard from God, but live a ratchet lifestyle. <laughs> Listen, if there's no pursuit of holiness in your life, you didn't hear God's voice. Or if you did, you're ignoring him. And that's even worse than thinking you heard him and didn't. What did Isaiah say when he saw the Lord in Isaiah 6? Woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. When you come in contact with a holy God, you fear and you tremble. What did Israel say in our text? Moses, you speak to us lest we die. <laughs> like his voice might kill us. It's that holy and powerful and glorious. But Moses comforts them. And he says, no, 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 don't fear death. 
God has come to test you. He's done this. His holy presence and his power and everything that's happening on Sinai is to test you so that you might fear God and not sin. Not that you would fear death, but that you would fear God and that you might not sin. This is the test. You know you've heard from the living God when it leads to two things. Pursuit of holiness and longing for a mediator. You know you've heard from the Lord when you've seen him by the eyes of faith and the splendor of his holiness. When you honestly assess your own sinfulness in the light of his transcendent holiness. And therefore you're like, Lord, I need a mediator. I see you in your holiness. I hear your holiness. I see how other and distinct you are. I see my sinfulness and I'm honest about that. And so that leaves me fearing you and longing that you would have a mediator, a go-between between you and I. Someone to go between your sinful self and his holy highness. And Moses draws near to God in the thick darkness in verse 21. Now, as we've studied through the Ten Commandments, has God's law not revealed over and over? God's holy standard is more than we can merit. Has he not revealed over and over we're more sinful than we can do anything about? Has he not left us over and over longing for a mediator to go between us and God? And on this side of the cross, as we've thought about the gospel, has the gospel of Christ and the sufficient work of our mediator not tasted sweeter and sweeter to our sinful souls? For Paul says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. Non-Christian friend, let us warn you this morning, you dare not approach God based on your own merit. But instead, join the rest of us sinners by looking to Christ Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the law for us and died the death our sin deserves, though we had no sin of his own. He died and rose again and therefore is qualified to be our greater than Moses deliverer, our greater than Moses redeemer, our greater than Moses mediator. He's fulfilled the word of God and offered us to be our righteousness by grace alone through faith in his work alone. Christian, how do you know you've heard from God? Are you growing in your fear of God? You're longing for and resting in Jesus as your mediator. If so, that's because you've heard from the very word of God. Second question, how do you know you're among the people of God? How do you know you're among the people of God? Now, remember in context where we are and what's going on in Exodus. Yahweh has rescued Israel from slavery unto a new life. This was by his grace, not by their works. They did nothing to get rescued. God in his kindness and grace and mercy rescued them. He set them free from bondage that they might live this new life. And so now he's giving them his law to show them this is the new life that I've called you to live. And remember and even think about the structure of the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments dealt in our relationship primarily with God. You should have no other gods before me. You should have no other idols. You should not misrepresent or take my name in vain. And you must rest in my uh, finished work in creation and redemption. So these first four commandments dealing in Israel's relationship with God. In summary, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then the rest of the commandments, five through ten, talked about relationship to one another. You should honor your father and mother. There should be no murder. There should be no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting. In summary, love your neighbor as yourself. God has set apart Israel as his covenant people for his glory among the nations. And that to demonstrate this through their holiness, by their fidelity to worship of Yahweh, and through their justice in their community and how they deal with one another. And so I just want to survey the, what's called the book of the covenant. We see uh, Moses, uh, this referred to in chapter 24, I believe, verse 7. But we're going to get into case law in Israel. So this is just what you showed up for this morning. Give me a bunch of case law. <laughs> Let's study some law books for the sermon this morning. 
But I want to break them down and just look at what is Yahweh doing. Again, he's perfecting and, I mean, sorry, he's protecting their holiness and protecting their justice. Because he's called them to be a holy and just people. So he's first going to deal with their worship. And say, hey, your, your worship has to be set apart to me and to me alone. And then your relationship with one another should be a relationship of justice such that the world sees you worship Yahweh and you live out in this community the way Yahweh has called you to live. So let's look first at laws to protect worship. Exodus chapter 20, verse 22 through 26. Now listen, I'm not going to read all these verses. I'm just going to summarize what's in them. Uh, then in community groups, even you can dive into them. But first we see in Exodus 20, laws about the altars, about how to have worship, how Israel is to worship. And he just reminds them, you've trembled at my presence and my words from heaven, verse 22. And he reminds them what he taught them in the Ten Commandments. You should have no false gods that compete for your allegiance and affection, first commandment. And then he says, you ought not to have false worship, but worship according to my will and for the sake of my name. There's the second and third commandment. He says that in verse 24, 25, and 26. That he's saying, no, no, let me remind you, you're set apart to me and me only. And as you have this worship, as you set up this altar, you're going to do it in such a way that demonstrates and fulfills and applies that which I've taught you, even in the Ten Commandments. They're to build an altar of uncut or hewn stones. What does, what does he mean by this? You're to use natural materials that God, as God designed them, made. So that you remember, God made and chose Israel. She didn't make or choose Yahweh. Throughout this section, Israel's holiness and justice is against the backdrop of the Canaanites and other pagan religious practices. In these other pagan religions, they would make these ornate structures with all kinds of designs and creations and even uh, designs of their false gods to worship their false gods and brag on their false gods and demonstrate they're the one who made this. Whereas Yahweh tells Israel, no, 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 you're going to make a temple out of stones that makes real, real clear the way I made them. Now, you had nothing to do with this worship. You had nothing to do with being my people. It wasn't because you were many or because you were strong, but because of my grace that I chose you, and your worship is going to demonstrate and show that. Most importantly, Israel is to remember God created and redeemed her. She is not self-made, but God wrought. God means for the church to understand this reality as well. Unless he builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord Jesus builds uh, the church, then the gates of hell would, hell would prevail against it. But he says, no, 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 I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. And Christ does this even in his church, the new temple, through the folly of what we preach, the gospel. The apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says, The word of the cross, Christ being crucified, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Spurgeon capitalizing and looking at the connection of why you would, uh, God would call Israel to have these kinds of stones to make the sacrifices on the altar, Spurgeon says, God's altar was to be built of uncut stones that no trace of human skill or labor might be seen on it. The proud human heart is anxious to have a hand in the justification of the soul before God. Humblings and repentings are trusted in. Good works are put forth. Natural ability is much vaunted. And by all means, the attempt is made to lift up human tools on the divine altar. But the Lord alone must be exalted in the work of atonement. And not a single mark of man's chisel or hammer will be endured. There is an inherent blasphemy in seeking to add to what Christ Jesus in his dying moments declared to be finished or to improve that which in the Lord Jehovah finds perfect satisfaction. So we see even in their worship, he's saying you're going to worship in such a way that demonstrates I'm the one true God. I'm the one who created and redeemed and called you Israel. I'm the one who has done this work. Flip over to chapter 23, verse 10. We see also laws about Sabbaths and feasts. 
So again, we're first thing he's, he's giving them laws to protect worship, to protect their holiness, to protect their set-apartness to Yahweh as the one true God. You flip over to chapter 23, verse 10 through 19, and again, you see laws about Sabbaths and feasts and, and dealing with their worship. And there's a few things we see here that are very simple to set them apart. The six one Sabbath principles to set apart Israel from the surrounding people. We see this in uh, verses 10 through 12. That they are to work six days and on the Sabbath day they are to rest. Fourth commandment. So again, he's just applying what he's taught broadly in those commandments specifically to Israel in this day and in this moment. They're to work six days. They're to rest on the Sabbath. And this is everyone. All workers, servants, men, women, children, even the animals are to rest on the seventh day. And we see in this text not only the seventh day, but the seventh year is to be a unique year of rest. For the poor, for the land, and for even for the beasts. We see that in verse 10. And all this again is about fidelity to Yahweh, the one true God. Look at verse 13. He makes this clear. Pay attention to all that I've said to you. Make no mention of the names of the other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So he's saying, no, everything I'm talking to you about how you build the altar, how you make the sacrifices, how you practice these feasts, how you come and worship, how you work six days and rest on the Sabbath, how you work six years and work on the seventh year is so that you would understand you belong to me. And the nations would see you belong to me. And then he lists three feasts that shall be celebrated by Israel in worship. First, the Feast of Unleavened Bread to commemorate the Passover. Secondly, the Feast of Harvest which uh, also was referred to as the Feast of Weeks and later called Pentecost. Penta meaning 50, 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then lastly, the Feast of Ingathering, or in the New Testament times, it was referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And then we come to verse 19. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What is this talking about? <clears throat> So we've got the feast, we've got the gatherings, we've got the altar, we've got the worship, we've got the Sabbaths, we've got the year of Jubilee. Like we've got these things in place. To, what is it up? What's up with this goat and its milk? Now listen, we don't have much time to spend on this, but I know your curiosity would be there, so I at least needed to answer it for you so that you not be distracted. There are two primary theories as to why this is forbidden. And it's very possible that both are true. Number one, one theory is that there's a pagan worship practice that was to boil a young goat in its mother's milk in order to appease the gods and get them to bring fertility to all of the animals, all the livestock, all of the land. And so God, again, God is setting apart, Yahweh's setting apart Israel from pagan gods. And so it's possible that he's saying, you don't do that. That's, that's a pagan act of worship, not worship of my people. But also, this violates the natural order of creation. A goat's milk is meant to nourish and bring life to, to her kid, to her young, not to kill it. And Yahweh is demonstrating, no, that which I created to give life gives life, not brings death. And as my set-apart people, you need to understand and think about who I am and how you worship and what you offer to me. Now, this side of the cross, Jesus is the bread of life. He is our Passover lamb. He's fulfilled all that these feasts and all of the, the Sabbath rest points to. We'll talk about that a little more at the end. But notice again, we see these laws are about protecting worship. This is about Israel's holiness. The people of God ought to be holy. And that's what these laws are about. Applications to the Ten Commandments for Israel and how Israel is to be holy. Second, within that, we have laws to protect justice. So again, this is about holiness and justice. So there's right relationship with God, but then there's right relationship among man. 
Now, as we get into these laws, and again, same thing, we'll summarize and cover a whole bunch of ground beginning in chapter 21, uh, verse 1. But what you'll, you need to understand, these laws are not exhaustive. They're basic guidelines for a just society in Israel. Even if you look at verse 1, these are the rules that you shall set before them. They're also, the, like when the judges are going to make judgments over a given situation and decide what justice looks like, this is where we're going to go. This is the case law for them to determine a precedent for understanding what justice looks like in a given moment. So it's not exhaustive, but again, it's case law so that judges could rule in a given situation and figure out what would be right in a given situation. Which means there's a difference between these case laws and the Ten Commandments. Now, I want to summarize what we find in these case laws as, that, again, are applications of the Ten Commandments to a specific context, Israel. And I want to go through just a few categories. And in those categories, highlight, we can see something about what God cares about in a just society. We can see something about his character, even if the applications aren't the exact same in our context in day this side of the cross. We can see something about the things God cares about. First, notice in Exodus 21, 2 through 11, there are laws to protect slaves. Now, this makes sense that he would begin. As soon as he's going to get to justice, the first thing he's going to talk about is slaves. Why? Well, because Israel were just slaves in Egypt. And they were just set free from bondage. And so he's going to say, hey, listen, I didn't set you free so that you could oppress other people. I didn't set you free that you might oppress one another. So he's going to begin with first what it looks like. Now, again, we think slaves and we think chattel slavery. We think about the wounds uh, in our own nation's history. You need to think more in indentured servitude than, than chattel slavery. There's a difference. This was often how the poorest of the Israelites would survive or get out of debt. In fact, one scholar uh, actually argues debt was the most common re reason people became slaves. This was not man-stealing, again, like chattel slavery. Slaves weren't bought and sold into slavery against their will. That's expressly forbidden in verse 16, was a capital offense punishable by death. So if you were caught stealing and taking slaves, you were able to be put to death by the law. Which again is why even in our own history and nation's history, they had to delete Exodus from the Bible when they give to the slaves. Because the Bible teaches us wrong. <laughs> it's very, very clear. And so again, what we're looking at now is, you no, know, how do uh, the kind of lowest class in society survive? And how do we make sure their dignity is preserved in Israel? Israel's not to oppress one another like the Egyptians had oppressed them. These rulings were to help govern people, particularly the poor, in and out of households. So there's a few observations that we see in this section of the law. Number one, freedom is protected. So verse two says the servants will serve six years. Year seven, they'll go out free. We also see that marital status was honored in verse three. And that even there was a provision made if the master gave one of the servants a wife, that he was free to go when he was free to go and leave his wife and children. Or that if he said, no, no, I love my master, I want to stay with my wife and children, that he could stay and be a part of the family permanently. And that even if he would go, he could, he could get uh, a ways to, to buy and purchase and have freedom for his wife and children. So in this, marriage is being regulated. Saying, hey, time out. No, this has got to be regulated. These families must be regulated. We also see in verse 7, female slaves were protected by extra regulations. A female slave wouldn't just be set uh, free due to her unique vulnerability in a society where she could not provide for herself but must rely on her father or husband. So in order to protect her from trafficking and abuse, she could be redeemed back from her father if she wasn't pleasing to a master. She could not be sold to foreign peoples. That's verse eight, uh, the second part of verse 8. If she was for the master's son, the master shall treat her like a daughter. Food, clothing, and marital rights must be given to her, even if the son ends up taking another wife. That's verse 10. 
And if you would not do all this, she can go free, presumably back to her father or family in verse 11. So even what we see here is God means even for the lowest class of service to be treated justly and protected in Israel. That God is concerned. He's going to say, listen, you've come out of a place where you were oppressed. That's not how we're going to do things in this just society that I'm creating. And so he gives these laws. Second, we see him give laws to protect the sanctity of life and against acts of violence. So you go now to verse 12 through 32. We see that the death penalty is appropriate for murder because of the value of life. So it's saying, no, no, life is so important that if you take a life, then your life will be taken. We see in verse 13 and 14, cities of refuge are provided for involuntary manslaughter. So if there was a conflict that led to death, but you weren't lying in wait, the text says, then there was a city of refuge you could go to and be safe there until the judges could give a ruling over your crime and your punishment. Now you need to remember again, contextually, there were no jail cells. So confinement was not an option for punishment. You could lock someone up. There was no locking someone up. So again, you had death penalty, you had cities of refuge, you had to figure out other ways to make sure justice was enacted in this community. We see also, again, uh, harsh penalties for things that had clearly, we've talked about even the Ten Commandments. Children abusing and cursing parents was punishable by death. We see that in verse 15 and 17. And again, this is case law. So this is the most extreme punishment possible. It doesn't necessarily mean every time this is what a judge would rule, but this was the kind of the maximum penalty uh, for these crimes. We see in verse 16, again, man-stealing was punishable by death. So if you were stealing human beings made in the image of God, you could be put to death. We see in verse 18 and 19 that a fight that would result in an injury must be made right for the loss of time. So if the person couldn't work, because you got in a fight and you injured them, you had to make that right with them. We see in verse 20, a master was not allowed to strike and kill his slave as an act of discipline. That if he, he, there was an act of discipline that led to no work and in, in product, uh, productivity, that was the master's own punishment. That was his own fault. We see in verse 22, if two men get in a fight and injure a pregnant woman and it leads her to give birth, that if the baby comes out and is healthy, well, then the father would determine the fine of the two men that fought and injured the wife because the baby in the womb was considered life. But if she came out and the babies died, then the men who, who caused that problem, they, they got capital punishment. Life for life, tooth for tooth. This was killing a baby in the womb, and they got that punishment. Now, as you see at the end of this, again, lex talionis, this language, law of retaliation, um, this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You need to understand this language was language meant to communicate justice needs to be carried out by appropriate, appropriate punishment commensurate with the crime. So you had other case laws in the day, pagan case laws, that usually most of those case laws, Canaanite case laws, other Babylonian case laws, these other laws, you could get out of a crime basically as long as you had some money. It would just be a little fine. So the wealthy were good, the poor were in trouble. And so this is what would happen. So literally what's happening even in this moment is saying, no, no, there must be a just rendering. There must be just punishment for the crime that is happening in this day. So it's important to remember this backdrop of pagan lands. One commentator says in the earlier laws of uh, Hammurabi, a murder was required to make only financial compensation to the victim's family. So again, if you had money, you could get off. It's even true around the world today. You got enough money, you can buy yourself out of a crime. That's not justice. That's not how God's people are to live. 
They were to honor the sanctity of life by demonstrating the value of life, by making sure the legal punishment for crimes were morally equal to the offense of the crime. This, this sanctity of life even extended to protect those gored by a person's ox. So if your ox killed someone, first time and it's just an accident, ox is put to death. But if it happens again, you hadn't put the ox to death, and you know this ox has done this, then the ox will be put to death and also the person for neglect that led to the homicide of the individual. Next, we see laws to protect personal property. Chapter 21, verse 33 to 22, verse 15. Personal property matters to God. So sanctity of life matters. Even the lowest of, uh, lowest of society matters. So he's protecting the image of God. He's protecting the sanctity of life. But also it's, no, personal property matters. So we see in chapter 21, verse 33 uh, through 36, if by negligence or accident you cause property or financial harm to another, you had to make it right. We see chapter 22, verse 1 and 5, if you stole property, you had to pay extra according to your crime. And even in chapter 22, verse 2, if you broke into someone's house at night and they killed you in self-defense, they were not charged with a crime because of your crime of breaking in the home in their property. We see in chapter 22, verse 7 to 13, if you're stewarding another person's property and something happens, then proper restitution should be made based on the circumstances. If you borrowed something and it was damaged or lost or killed, then you should make proper restitution. And so again, we see in a just society, personal property is to be honored. Next, we see laws to protect the most vulnerable of the society. Not kind of just the lowest class, but the most vulnerable. Chapter 22, verse 16. Verse 16 and 17, we hear about a man uh, seducing a virgin. So this is not rape. This is, this is a consensual relationship. But this man is held responsible and is required to either do what's right to make it right, marry her, or to even pay a fine in order to make this right for what he has done. So hookup culture is to be abhorred and obviously costly. This is addressed to the man who seduces the virgin. Marriage is to be honored. Men and women are taking responsibility for their actions, but especially men because of the vulnerability of women in the ancient Near East. And then we come to chapter 22, verse 18. And we have three interesting verses here. You should not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Now, again, we're in the middle of a just society and primarily talking about people, but you can't separate right relationship with people from right relationship with God, and we see the overlap even here. False worship of false gods inevitably leads to an unjust society. Sorcery, that is, using demonic power for magic, bestiality, being with an animal sexually, idolatry are all explicit embracing of unholiness, a rejection of Yahweh, and an embrace of pagan worship practices, and therefore punishable by death. And friends, we even learn from this, and it's worth saying in our day, understanding that when sexual immorality and idolatry is embraced, encouraged, and affirmed, a society will increasingly become vile and destructive. This is the logic of Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32. We're witnessing this even in our day with the aggression of the LGBTQ plus agenda in our day. Now, to be clear, God's grace is available to all who see their sexual immorality and sin and need for a savior. We're willing to sit down and have conversations with anyone who's like, this feels wrong or confusing. But we want you to know this movement is going to fail to deliver the happiness that it promises to deliver. And instead, it's going to bring utter confusion, destruction, and pain. The church must be ready and willing when the refugees of the LGBTQ plus movement come looking for help, hope, and healing. We must be ready. 
And because we have it in Christ and the sexual ethic revealed in his word leads to human flourishing for all. Speaking of refugees, God again reminds them that God's delivering grace should lead to a just and merciful people who understand and take care even of refugees. Look at verse 22, verse 21. You should not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You should not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. So the law is meant to produce a just society that protects the vulnerable by reminding Israel of their own vulnerability and the grace, mercy, and compassion of the Lord. Therefore, they're to care for the refugee and sojourner as former sojourners. They shall never mistreat a widow or an orphan, the fatherless, because God will hear their cry and bring forth his judgment if they do. They shall not mistreat. We continue on, chapter 22, 25, 27. They shall not mistreat or take advantage of the poor and make money by manipulating and charging interest like the world does. They shall honor rulers among them rather than complain and curse them. Knowing and understanding God has placed rulers in place to bless or judge a nation or a church. They should be faithful stewards and tithe to God as he has called them. Verse 29 to 31. They're not to be unholy in their dealings by eating roadkill. Verse 31. For it is ceremonially unclean and literally unclean. You shouldn't do it. <clears throat> Lastly, we see laws to protect truth. Chapter 23, verse 1 through 9. The people of God must love truth. In bearing witness, they must love the truth more than they love popular opinion, the rich, or the poor. So they cannot take bribes or side with the rich and powerful against the poor. Chapter 23, verse 6 and 8. But also notice they cannot side with the poor and oppressed against what is true. Chapter 23, verse 3. So the, 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 it's clear here. Hey, the poor aren't righteous in and of themselves. That's the problem with critical theory in theory. The poor aren't righteous in themselves. The oppressed aren't righteous in themselves. The oppressor is not righteous in themselves. So don't side with the rich. Don't side with the poor. Side with the truth. Amen. You must be committed to the truth. And whatever the truth says, that's what you must say. If we're going to have a just society, we must have truth. We must have people committed to truth, not to partiality. Allegiance must be the truth in any given situation, not to any partiality. And notice again in verse 9, don't take advantage of the sojourner. Remember who you are. Remembering who we used to be is critical to being a community of justice. We were those headed to hell, deserving the wrath of God. And he saved us by his grace. So we have grace to extend to all kinds of sinners. Even such that we would, as we see in the text, love our own enemies. Chapter 23, verse 4 and 5, he's like, yo, if you see your enemy's ox, the dude who hates you, you see the ox has gone away, make sure you get the ox and take it back to him. Don't cancel him, help him. <laughs> Countercultural. But if we're going to have a just society, we have to understand we got to love people, even those who hate us. Even as Dr. King said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So only, or in order to protect justice among the Israelites, there are laws to protect servants, the sanctity of life, personal property, the most vulnerable, that is the sojourner, the widow, the orphan, the poor, and to protect the truth. Let me say a pastoral word about social justice today. We are not Israel, and we do not live in a theocracy. We are the new covenant people of God. We're not in charge of the state or of the sword. Therefore, the first and primary place we should aim to have a just society is in the local church as a covenant people of God. So listen, if you talk a big game about social justice in the world, but your trash is a church member, you're out of order. So the first place you'll find out are you a person committed to justice is in your relationships with the local church. 
However, we should also be good neighbors and citizens in the place that we live. Faithful Christians will certainly disagree on the best strategy to have a just secular society full of godless ideologies and practices. But that doesn't mean we do nothing. We care about what God cares about. We're clear on the mission of the church. Make disciples, teach them everything Jesus commanded, which includes caring about what God cares about. We ought to be concerned about what God is concerned about, even when it comes to the most vulnerable, to orphans, to widows, to the poor, to the sojourner. At King's Cross, we seek to create opportunities by partnering in our city and around the world. We want to help you get connected via our website. So we've got a page on the website that just gives you these four categories to say, hey, Christians have always cared about this. You want to get involved? You want to serve? You want to try to bring justice even in our community? Go to the website, find those opportunities. But King's Cross members, let us make Greensboro a better place as much as we can, primarily by being a holy and just community as King's Cross. But then also by being those who help one another declare the good news and display good deeds that commend the good news as we live holy and just lives in this world. And let us be gracious with others in how we interact on the best way to do that. So how do you know you're among the people of God? Are you among those who by God's grace are pursuing holiness in worship and justice in their community of faith and as they can the world they live in? Third question. Don't worry, the last two are much quicker. <clears throat> And much less complex, praise God. <clears throat> Third question, how do you know if you're following God? So if you've heard from God and you're with his people, how do you know that you're currently following him? Chapter 23, verse 20 to 32. God promises to give Canaan to Israel and warns them against infidelity spiritually. He promises that if Israel obeys his word, his angel will guide Israel to the promised land, verse 22 and 23, by driving out their enemies. And then he makes these incredible promises. Verse 25, 26, he says he'll give them blessings of comfort and health. Verse 27 and 28, he'll guarantee their safety and security, that he'll drive out their pagan enemies over time so that the land will be habitable. But notice the warnings about idolatry and syncretism. Look at verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So he lets them know, listen, I'm giving you, I'm taking you into the promised land, but you must not worship the idols of the people, but instead destroy them. And you must make no compromise by making covenant with and or dwelling with the inhabitants in 32 and 33. God's taking them to the promised land, but they must remain his holy, set-apart people. That's why he's just giving them all these case laws to say, this is what it's like to be holy, and this is what it's like to be just. You know you're following God when you, by his grace, are pursuing holiness and justice on your way to the promised land. The same is true this side of the cross of Christ in the new covenant. Again, we're not a theocracy. The church does not bear the authority of the sword. We're not executing the death penalty for sorcery, sexual immorality, or idolatry. However, the Lord Jesus does teach in Matthew 16 and 18 that the church bears the authority of the keys. That the kingdom is represented in the church that we bind and loose, that we receive and we remove. And so if there's a person claiming the name of Christ but living in scandalous, ongoing, public, unrepentant sin, we call them to repentance. If they don't repent, we excommunicate them from the church. Why? Because we're going to be a holy and just people. So in the new covenant, we understand that the state flexes the sword. We flex the keys. We represent God in holiness and in justice. And what that means is we're here as a faith family to help one another unto the promised land. Trusting God's promises for all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. 
taking heed to the warnings of Christ that he's given us in his word. We're helping each other get to the promised land by trusting the promises of God and taking heed to the warnings of God. We go after strange sheep. We bring them back into the fold that we might get them to the promised land. So again, if we've heard from God and are with his people, how do we know we're following him? We trust his promises. We take heed to his warnings and we help one another follow him into the promised land. And therefore, our fourth and final question, how do you know you're part of the covenant people of God? How do you know you're a part of this covenant people? Exodus chapter 24 records the ratification of the Mosaic covenant. In the opening verses, God invites Moses as mediator all the way up near the Lord. Those helping him, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the leaders, they worship him from afar. Israel remains at the base of the mountain. And then we pick up Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord that we've just studied together and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, again, that which we've just studied, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up. They saw the God of Israel that was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven, of, like, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of men. For the people of Israel, they beheld God and ate and drank. How do you know you're part of the covenant people of God? Let's just point out a few things about the ratification of this Mosaic covenant with Israel. First, they agreed to do his word just like they did in chapter 19, verse 8. They promised, okay, Lord, we've heard from you. We've heard your, 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 your towering voice and we will do what you've called us to do. We will follow the book of the covenant. We will follow the law. Then they did what he commanded them to do back in chapter 20, verse 24, 26, which is where we started and built an altar the way he said to build it and worshiped him the way he said to worship him. And then Moses read the book of the covenant that we've surveyed this morning. And then the covenant was sealed by blood. Note the elements of the covenant ratification ceremony. God's word, a sacrifice for worship because sin still remains. These people are still sinful. That's why you got to have all these laws to begin with. So a sacrifice must be made. A sacrifice must die so they don't die. Blood must be shed for this covenant to be kept. So God's word, sacrifice for worship, sealed by the blood. The glory of the Lord is revealed and then they ate and drank. And friends, what do we have in the new covenant? God's word. The word made flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ. Sacrifice for worship. The Lord Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice to take away the sin of the world so that we might worship in spirit and in truth. All of it sealed by the very blood of the Lamb so that we could be washed and covered and sprinkled by this blood. And do we not have the glory of the Lord revealed? John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And just before his death, he transforms the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper for us to eat and remember his redeeming love. And do you remember the phrase he uses? 
He uses the phrase, the blood of the covenant. To show us he is our peace offering. Indeed, even as Hebrews says, better than any of the other offerings. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and uh, of goats and calves, but means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. They were sacrificing animals that were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. Hebrews 12, 24 says, To Jesus, we come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now God then calls Moses up to get further instruction as you read in verses 12 through 18. That's where we'll leave him this week until we come next week to hear from my good friend Nate Aiken on the tabernacle and how God has a unique presence with his people. But this marks a turning point for us in our study through Exodus. 1 through 18, God rescuing Israel from slavery. 19 through 24, God rescuing Israel unto a new life. The rest of the book, God rescuing Israel for worship. And so I conclude with those four questions again. How do you know you've heard from God? You fear him and you rest in Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. How do you know you're with the people of God? Well, by God's grace, they're pursuing holiness and justice. How do you know you're following God? You're trusting in his promises and taking heed to his warnings with his people as you march towards the promised land. And how do you know you're part of the covenant people of God? You're resting in the new and better covenant by trusting wholly in the blood of the Lamb. Let's close in prayer.